Welcome to episode 6 of the Beyond the Lectern podcast. I'm Jason Lodge. And I'm Rachel Sierston. In this episode, we spoke with somebody who probably requires no introduction. We spoke to University of Melbourne Laureate Professor John Hattie. John is most noted for his 2008 book, Visible Learning, which was a synthesis of over 800 meta-analyses related to achievement. He's a professor of education in the Melbourne Graduate School of Education and has uh, quite a long history of work in looking at education across all levels, from K-12 through to higher education. We spoke to John about the power of feedback in higher education, and so I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as we did. John, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. Jason, Rachel. We've been reading your paper on the power of feedback, but I wanted to uh, zoom out a little bit and talk about the sort of approach that you've used in your research over the years, which is really a bird's eye view of the impact of learning interventions in classroom settings. Um, and so I was hoping to get your thoughts on you know, the values of scaling up um, our evaluation of learning interventions and reviewing meta-analyses of meta-analyses, that kind of a level, um, and the kind of approach that you've used in going about that. Yeah, like I was interested in... Um what seemed a very strange situation in our business where everybody I met told me that what they were studying is what made the difference to learning. And everyone could find evidence, positive evidence, that in fact it did make a difference. And it just didn't make sense that everything worked. And then when you meet teachers, they all say, they just come and watch me, it works. And in many cases, and in fact in nearly all cases, they're right, yeah. it does work. And so I wanted to change the question about what works to the relative question, what works best? And the most optimal way seemed to be using meta-analysis. And also when I started as an academic, meta-analysis was brand new. It was invented in 1976 by an educationalist and the best way of finding out what it is is to do it. So we did some. And then from that, I thought, well, what if I could collect other people's work on other people's work, which is the, what the synthesis of meta-analysis is, to come up with a bigger picture about the relative effects. And as we discovered, um, as we discovered, things like uh, feedback started to dominate. Um, but there were many other attributes about what was at the top and what was at the bottom. But the hardest thing was then trying to make sense over that distribution of now 250 different influences. Mm. Um, and that was the fun part, but that was the hard part. But it did seem a reasonably, as it turned out, it's a reasonably efficient way of collecting many millions of kids' data without having to touch a single kid. So mostly in the podcast, we focus on higher education. So the other, the sorts of things that you were finding across the board fairly consistent in the higher education context compared to other contexts, or were there some, some differences there that you noticed? Well, as, as we know in this area, the, one of the fundamental questions we ask is the question about moderators. Does it make a difference in higher ed, early childhood, whatever, across countries? And that's absolutely part of the pursuit. I, I tried to constrain my work between the ages of 4 and 20, around yeah, 20 plus, including university, and certainly asked the question, is that which makes the best difference different in higher ed from other areas? And I know it's going to upset people, but the answer is no. It really is the same. What works best with five-year-olds works best with university students right through. Um, and that's one of the hardest, most important empirical questions we have asked and should continue to ask, is there a difference? But so far, no, it's exactly the same. So a lot of this, I think, relates to the question of you know, whether 
very general evidence of what works, whether that be feedback or testing or you know, interleaving and those sorts of learning science strategies and what works in your particular classroom context. And there seems to be a distance between those two contexts, the general evidence and the specific classroom case. And so do you see this broad scale view, this bird's eye view of what bubbles to the surface across the collapsing across those different contexts is perhaps one way to bridge that distance? Well, it is. You know, you're right. You, you, there's a lot of influences that I'd call structural ones. Um, and that's where you find some differences between the higher education and the schools, because uh, class size isn't as critical in the universities, given we go from class sizes of you know, five to a thousand plus. But in schools, we're obsessed about it. We're obsessed about uh, common curricula. Well, that's not as common in the university sectors. We're obsessed about uh, national assessment regimes. And a lot of those things are peculiar to the school sector. Um, certainly when you then go to the kind of things that you're talking about, Rachel, the kind of the learning strategies, the influences of the teacher, no, they are very common across both. And you know, there's a kind of a, an outline of a recipe of what works right across from four-year-olds to 20-year-olds. And certainly the work that I've done specifically on the tertiary sector it's the same. So I guess one of the questions that comes out of this if we're thinking about these broad approaches to, to research, something that we've been involved in for the last few years is the Science of Learning Research Centre. So where do you see the role of these sorts of contained, um, highly controlled lab studies in being able to inform what teachers are doing on the ground? Because as, as Rachel sort of alluded to, there's quite some distance there. So what's your sense of that translation process? How do we do that in a, in a way that makes sense to teachers? Well, we don't have a strong discipline of doing lab studies in education. Um, and so the majority, the vast majority of the work in the visible learning is based in regular classrooms, whether it be tertiary, early childhood or the regular school. But certainly um, you know, the whole focus of visible learning is around the learning. And that's one thing where we can learn dramatically from the kind of controlled studies. In fact, quite frankly, we need to hang a lot more of them. Um, there's so much variance, there's so many things going on in the classroom to sort out what's going on and by age eight most kids have learnt the socialisation of classrooms which is to come to school, be quiet, watch the teacher do the work and you can't hear learning in those circumstances and so there is a tremendous amount that we can and should learn from those kinds of studies um, to tease out what actually is going on before we then go into a classroom and the messy nature of busy, buzzy classrooms to see what's going on, which often gets missed. No, we, we need to do a lot more of that. Take something like feedback then. Do you, if you were to look at the results of studies, because there are so many studies on feedback, if you yes. look, look at the results of studies on feedback in more classroom-oriented settings and more lab-based-oriented settings, do you see a difference? Oh, look, the, the, let's go to feedback. There's, there's a, a, a huge source of evidence that it's one of the most powerful things. However, it's also the most variable like up to about a third of the feedback that we give can have a zero to negative effect, but it's not the same across kids. And sorting that out is what we're gonna talk about today. Um, it stuns me that despite all that variability, it's still one of the most powerful things. And that's why I've certainly spent, and you've spent a lot of time trying to sort out that variability. And certainly going back to your argument, Jason, that's where controlled studies can give us a better understanding. In fact, it's through the controlled studies that I've learned how to sort out that variability. And I've spent a lot of time um, looking at that variance in feedback. And, you know, that's the most interesting thing about feedback, above and beyond the fact that despite that, it's still powerful. Imagine if, given its power, we could actually sort out that variability. Wow, we could actually advance learning dramatically by understanding that. Yeah. 
I think one of the things that always strikes me in higher education is that when we look nationally and we look you know, at various different institutions and you look at the sort of feedback that students give us about our performance as teachers, consistently one of the areas that is, is rated the lowest is the, the feedback that they get. Um, I sort of get a sense from that that a lot of that's really about them thinking about feedback in a very highly constrained way, that it's, you know, red pen marks on, a, on an essay or on a lab report or whatever, and are not necessarily seeing a lot of the other things that happen in the environment as forms of feedback. So I've sort of always thought of it as this idea as a conversation, that, that it's a two-way feedback process over the course of a semester or however long the students are with us. Um, but I guess students don't necessarily see it that way. Is, is that your sense of... Well, certainly it, it's true in this university and virtually every university in the Western world that students are pretty generous when they rate us as, as uh, teachers, um, except for feedback. And it's a magnitude below. Uh, I don't share your explanation of it. I have a different explanation for what's going on. Um, and you know, certainly many universities, when they see the results, set up commissions and talk about feedback. Unfortunately, what they nearly always recommend is we have to give more feedback. And that, as, as it turns out, is the wrong answer. Um, I think we need a better, much more nuanced understanding of what's going on. Uh, and so let, let's talk about feedback. Absolutely. I think, you know, on the face of it, it seems like a fairly straightforward intervention. But as, as you know, it's actually really quite, quite complex when you delve into the research that's out there. It doesn't always work. And sometimes it works better than, than in others. And depending on a whole range of variables, can you yes. give us a sense of some of those boundary conditions? Well, sure, but I want to go back a step first and talk about what I mean by feedback, because I think that's a, another interesting one. You know, it came out of the engineering work as almost a black box notion. Um, there was a lot of work done by the behaviourists in the 40s, 50s and 60s on feedback. Um, and it really wasn't until the cognitive revolution came along that we started to understand the massive difference between the giving of feedback and the receiving of feedback. And a lot of that early work didn't actually look at the receiving of feedback. We also look at what we mean by feedback, and you know, I've asked thousands of teachers what they mean by feedback. So I'll, you know, I'll ask you, if I asked you for your 10, 20 second elevator message of what you meant by feedback, what would you say? Yeah, this is a good question. I'd say something like information about what is a correct response. Jason? Well, I go back to your model with the four different levels. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> the, the point I'm making is that when you ask teachers, they nearly always see it in terms of you know, the correct information, in terms of confirmation, in terms of um, adding uh, elaborations. And in terms of the model that we've developed, you know, the, there's the three feedback questions. Where am I going? How am I going and where to next? And teachers invariably talk about where am I going and they're brilliant on how am I going. Mm. When you ask students, and we've asked thousands of students what they mean by feedback, same question. They, don't, they say none of that. Never come, hardly ever comes up. Their obsession is simple and singular. Where to next? And one of the explanations, I would argue, for the lower response and feedback has got nothing to do with red pens, it's got nothing to do with feedback, it's in, in the sense of corrections and comments, is their students read it and there's nowhere to next. So they say, I didn't receive feedback. And really it's a different concept of feedback. Now one of the dilemmas, particularly in higher education, is we nearly always give the feedback at the end, where it can't have much of a where to next. So once again they say, I didn't receive feedback. So despite the fact that you may spend hours and hours and hours writing comments on all the students' work or writing grades on the work, 
If there's nowhere to next, the students will argue black and blue they didn't receive it. And this is why I don't have any time for all that silly argument about whether you should give comments or whether you should give grades. It misses the point. It's how do you help the students get better? That's what they want. And when you ask them, what kind of feedback do you want? I want to know how to improve. And that's what we have to look at in our tertiary setting is about how we can come up with much more effective ways of helping students improve. So that's a, a self-regulation um, kind of a view of, of the role of feedback that, say, if you were wanting to learn a brand new concept from scratch and you have a go at articulating what an example of that concept might be after being provided the definition and then you receive feedback on you know, how well suited that example is, it's kind of like the bumpers, the yes. bowling bumpers of learning in a sense. Is that... Is that a, a, an accurate characterization? That it's a, absolutely, it's a yeah, it is, and it's it's like, um, you know, as we were talking about this morning, this is where the power of peers can be dramatically powerful if it's focused on where to next. Um, peers aren't so good about knowing necessarily how they're going because they don't have the relativities, but they're extremely critical about where to next. And like all of us, when we get feedback, you know, it's like, how do we improve? Now, there's your other problem. Feedback comes at a cost. Um, it's kind of like in my married life, I've succeeded 30-odd years of marriage because I'm the world's best selective listener. I know that when Janet tells me something and gives me feedback, particularly about how to improve, I have to do it again. I have to reinvest. I have to put more effort in. And so sometimes it's easier not hearing. And students are like that too. And this is the other dilemma. A teacher can give an incredible amount of feedback to a whole class. And every kid knows it's not about them. I can give you a lot of comments, not only about how am I going, where am I going, and where to next, and you may not receive them. This is why we have to have a focus on helping students and teaching them how to interpret where to next feedback, and giving them the opportunity to use that. And that's where your cost comes, and that's where your structure of your course comes. How do you structure your course so that the students can grow on top of the feedback you give? So when you set an assignment, when you set a task, when you give them feedback, you have to ask, what's next? So there is a what's next for them to improve, and that's often missing. Going back a bit to the, the four-level thing, I, I found when I... So we're talking about this model that's in the paper, the power of feedback, and the four levels that are represented in the, in the diagram that you've got in there are about the task level, the process level, self-regulation, and then the self-level. I thought this was really useful for me because I, what I found is that I was doing a lot of stuff that was process level. Um, and wasn't necessarily focusing on the forms of feedback outside of that. Is that a relatively common thing, no. do you think? Or Across the, the three levels, because I don't... Self-level's in there, but as we know, it has almost a zero to negative effect on the improvement of learning. No, um, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's uh, about 80 to 90% of the feedback's at the task level. That's the norm. If you're at the process level, you're well above where most... Now, we've got to be really careful here. There's no right answer in the sense... It's about where is the student now plus one. So if the students, like if you're starting off learning something and you're learning a lot of content, then feedback at the task level is absolutely excellent. Plus I want some process. At the process level, feedback at the process level, but I want some self-regulation. It turns out if you're working at the task level and you give self-regulation feedback, it's kind of wasted. It's not operable. And this is where the key comes. It's not whether each of those three levels, the task, which is, you said, it's, you said before, Rachel, it's about correct, incorrect, it's about reteaching. We have to do that. Mm-hmm. It's not just the process level, which is about, have you looked at other strategies? Have you actually looked at what the errors are? Or the self-regulation, which is, now you, 
take the responsibility for looking at strategies and error. It's linking that into where you want the student to be in their learning cycle. And as will happen in any class, particularly at the tertiary level, you'll have students right across the spectrum. And that's the hard part about feedback. And so getting the students to understand where they are in their learning cycle and then getting them to interpret the feedback relative to that, plus one, is the art. Maybe one of the reasons that I look at the process level is because that's what I research. So I constantly <laughs> just go back to thinking about processes all the time. Well, very simply, if, if um, we could get uh, teachers and universities to do more process feedback, uh, we'd be in a much different and better shape than we are now. And you know, I'd ask everyone listening into this podcast to look at, go back after you've written all your comments, go back and look at the nature of them and classify them. Are they about the content? Uh, are they about strategies? Are they about the self-regulations? And I think you'll find that 90 plus percent are about the content. In some ways it's easier, in some ways it's more observable, but is that where the student is? Mm. Like we did a study in, a, in a, uh, a setting in another country where the students were the top students in the country by a long way. There's a thousand plus of them, way up the top, by a million miles, and 90% of their feedback was task. That's just wrong. That's dumbing the kids down. Now, here's the good news. The students kind of like having the task level when you're bright because you have to do anything. And you usually get it right. But you're not advancing them. And I bet they'll say at the end, as they did in that particular class, we never received feedback. In fact, looking at some of the things that you uh, found were more and less effective, it wasn't really surprising to me that things like praise and punishment that don't necessarily direct learning in any particular way weren't among the most effective strategies, whereas things like cues, which I interpret as um, you know, pointing students to the more diagnostic information that seemed to kind of come out on top. But there was one thing that really surprised me, that um, feedback on positive and correct responses seems to be more effective. Because the, the error learning research is in, in contrast to that. Do you have any idea of well, how to resolve that? I want you to tell me a bit more about how the error literature is a contrast to this. Let's imagine you did an assignment and let's imagine that you got everything correct. The feedback feed, feeds on errors. Um, it feeds on pointing out where the misunderstandings, the misconceptions are and pointing, hopefully, the where to next, what in the right direction. And so in that sense, um, I want to know more what you mean by how it's inconsistent, but treating errors as opportunities to learn now, for many students, particularly by the time they get to university, particularly if they've been successful in high school, struggle with errors, struggle with you commenting about them, and see it as some kind of attack on their esteem. Uh, and that's why we have to be very wary and careful how we make sure it's about the work, not about the person. Hence your comments about why all the praise stuff is very unfortunate, because it focuses on the wrong part. So how would you argue it's inconsistent? What you've just described is... is entirely consistent with making errors um, and receiving feedback on those errors does seem yeah. to be really powerful in at the task level in a lot of the learning science research. Actually, maybe this is more an issue of the kind of information you give on a correct response. So, for example, the elaborative interrogation research where if you provide people with an explanation for why something is true, then that seems to be also a powerful way to boost their learning. Um, and so maybe that's one way that you can reconcile those two different findings. Well, one of the things we're doing now, which is, we don't want to add to that model because it's you know, four by three already, is we're looking at the distinction between working at the surface and the deep level, where by surface I mean the content, the facts, the information, and the deep is how you relate those. And one of the things about errors is that at the surface level, it's 
probably it's very effective to correct them, reteach them. But at the deep level, it's incredibly powerful to let the students go into the pit of learning and wallow in their confusion and do the kind of work that you, know, you, you, you two are, are well known for. Um, like take, for example, problem-based learning. You know, what, what possibly could be wrong with problem-based learning except it doesn't work? And the reason it doesn't work is it's, it's too often it's introduced too early before the students have the content. They aren't sufficiently knowledgeable about the facts to then make the relationships that we want to make them. And so if you look at the effect size of problem-based learning at the surface level, it's zero to negative. If you look at it, the deep learning, it's about 0.5. It's a dramatic difference. And this is where we're getting at the kind of the comment we were saying earlier about the individual differences notion and, and looking at for, for moderators. Within the learning cycle, it turns out there is quite a few moderators. And that's where we start to really un, un tease things. So yes, you're right. Um, how you react to learn errors can differ depending where you are in that learning cycle. Surface level, correct them, fix them, go back and reteach them, learn them again. But at the deep cycle, deep level... That's where the interaction with peers, that's your interaction with problems, that's where the self-regulation really pays off. So I guess one of the things that always seems to be a sticking point with this is that there's a, a reluctance broadly to allow students in a higher education context to spend too much time in this pit or for us to think too much about failure because then that can have a negative effect on our student evaluations and we know that oh, yes. student evaluations tend to drive the way that we think about teaching in this context. How do you see that, that playing out? Are we, are we going to be able to get around this in some way? Well, it's interesting. You, know, you take universities like the one we're sitting in. You know, we, we, we deliberately structure our entry to have the brightest possible students we can get. And they're bright because they have been brought up in a system where error is barely tolerated, where error is seen as a, a mistake and some kind of condemnation about your performance. They love the cookbook method. Tell us what we need to know and we'll tell you back what you told us we needed to know. So when you have an unstructured situation, you are doomed as an instructor in institutions like this to allow them to wallow in that pit. And so we have to create trust. We have to get a situation where there's high levels of trust that it's okay not to know. And you know, that's really skillful teaching. And we have many colleagues in a place like this that are very skillful in allowing that situation. We also have to make sure that when they get into that high trust situation, they have sufficient knowledge to go into that pit. And that's another argument about the skill of instructors. And again, we have instructors that are skilled in doing that. Just setting up a wicked problem or an unstructured problem without dealing with the trust factor, that's not going to work. It's, these students are very cautious. They've learned how to play the game. They're very good at playing the game. The game they like is get it right, overlearn it, fact. And that's not good enough. That's not what we want to train them in. We want them to have interpretive skills. We want them to come out to collaborate. We want them to be team players. We want them to have to identify the errors and work with them. And that's why we have to look at the quality of our teaching here. And we can't afford to wait right through the undergraduate years and reinforce that narrow conception of learning because it's not going to do the students any good in the long run. And then if you try to do something different a bit later down the track, they're even more resistant to it because the culture set in and they've figured out strategies to be able to work through the system as it is. Absolutely. But then if you talk to nearly every academic about what they aspire in terms of their students, they'll talk about the kind of things you're talking about. Wicked problems, open-endedness, resilience, willingness to know, deep skills, communication. And so we've got a big problem between what we want and what we do. Yeah. We can fix what we do. Yeah. So, so I guess the, one of the other things that comes out of this then is that um, if you're a relatively new teacher in this context and you're not necessarily going to have a degree in education or you know a, a solid background in understanding learning theory and 
all of the other things, then what sorts of things do they need to know? Is it just a case of experience? Is it more experienced and more confident teachers that can do this? Or is there some other way that they can develop the knowledge and skills, um, you know, given that they don't necessarily have a background in education? I want to start slightly back from that, in that let's take these students, and particularly in a place like this, they are very adept at knowing what you value as opposed to what you say. And what you value is in your assignments and your tests. So I start there. What is the nature of the assignments? What is the nature of the tasks you give? And what's the nature of the assessments? And certainly when I did a, re a re brief review recently for a presentation I had to give on this campus, I went back to a lot of the exams and nearly every of them are closed. Every of them are about the facts, about the task. And so I would be inviting newer lecturers in a place like this to explore the nature of the tasks, to create a situation where they allow students with structure to get to the kind of things that we're talking about. I think we have to look at how we are clear to the students up front about what success looks like on those tasks. Um, like for example in my own courses on my website I have exemplars of um, previous students tasks so there's no secret. Why should it be they have to guess what I'm thinking? So you have to demystify that. And if you create that kind of environment, then you don't need a degree in education to do that. Um, and certainly what I'd be doing, particularly if I'm a new lecturer, is I'd be trying to find others who are doing that around the campus, learning from them and building the kind of communities. And that's exactly what you do in the, in the kind of um, workshops and courses that you, know, you run here across this campus. How do we get peers talking to peers to build the trust, to work out what happens if, see what the students are. But I come back. Look at these, start with the assignments. If all your assignments are closed shop assignments, I think you're taking an enormous risk to do otherwise in your class. The students will see you don't value it despite what you say. Going back to uh, what you were talking about before in terms of the wicked problems, that's an interesting thing to think about, I think. It strikes me that there are situations where providing feedback could potentially be, be harmful. And this makes me think of you know, an old medical case where you had uh, a doctor... Um, trying to find a way of diagnosing typhoid and so he, the method he developed was to palpate people's tongues, his patient's tongues, um, and patient after patient would come back a few weeks later with typhoid and so he, aha, I've developed a way of diagnosing typhoid, except he didn't realise that he was spreading the disease from one patient to the other because he wasn't washing his hands in between back in the day when, they, um, when germ theory wasn't, wasn't a thing. Um, so there are these wicked environments, I think, where feedback can, um, if interpreted the wrong way, um, can, can be particularly harmful. And I also think in a learning context, in a classroom context, for example, you might have um, lecturers who aren't always right. And so that um, the, the feedback might not necessarily be accurate all, all the time. And so can you um, think of any other sort of wicked environments and how we might avoid them? And well, you know, this is where it's really interesting as, as a lecturer, particularly if I'm a new lecturer in a university, and you give up, you get up and you do something and you've made an error. Um, how do you cope when someone, particularly a first-year student, points that out? And you know, what, what an incredible opportunity because that's exactly the situation the students are. And it's the, exactly the situation you're in sometimes when your two-year-old tells you as a parent that you've done something wrong. And how you react to that's critical to the credibility you have with your students. And there's no reason you couldn't say, whoops, looks like I've made an error here. 
let's look at the situation and look see how I made the error and let's see how we go. And if you go into some parts of the world, like Japanese classrooms, they spend an incredible amount of time reconstructing error, dealing with it. They don't see it as a problem to be excused into, oh my gosh, it's embarrassing, we've made a mistake. They see it as an opportunity to learn. And so there's no reason why you couldn't say, like in this next few sentences, I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to palpate the tongue. I'm going to say, ask them, what's wrong with that? And wallow in the error. And the notion of, and there's an incredible amount of learning from that. Like all the work on productive failure and how that's going on, the confusion error. How do we create situations in our classroom where we can mimic confusion and error. So I see those as incredible opportunities and I hope as instructors we see that and not see them as an embarrassment because if we see them as an embarrassment, guess what the students are going to see when they make an error? It's hard though because I remember when I first started teaching it was something that I was absolutely paranoid about saying I don't know, you know, because it felt like I was somehow impacting on my own credibility to be there. So that was a real barrier for me and it wasn't until I became more comfortable in saying oh actually I don't know the answer to this, let's try and find out together or being much more comfortable with that broader uncertainty. Mm. But then what I found over time is that I've become more and more comfortable with it so that the sorts of things that I would take into a workshop session become less structured over time because then it's quite useful to go with wherever that workshop might end up going because there's some great ideas that come out of the group. But it took me quite a long time to get to that point. So I think there's an interesting sort of trajectory there that a lot of people go through. But let me ask Jason, I have a hunch and I don't know how you did this, that it wasn't just practice, practice, practice. Something happened that allowed you to build that comfort. And of course, as teachers, or anyone, we go into a new job, it is about building experience. So did you see others doing it? Did you, what was your, how did you get to the point where you felt that comfort? Where was the cue? What was the thing? And here's my problem. And why did it take you so long? Shouldn't you have got some help? Shouldn't you have gone and talked to others? Shouldn't you have gone to some courses to say, hey, what do I do in this situation? Yes, I was in a small ca- regional university and a small campus of that university, so there were there were very few of us there, which made it quite difficult. Um, for me, I, I read a lot of stuff about teaching in higher ed because I was in this situation. I didn't quite understand what I needed to do and what, what worked and what didn't. I sort of had this level of overconfidence because it's like, yeah, yeah, I've done psychology, I've taught learning and behaviour, this teaching thing can't be that hard, surely. So for me, there wasn't quite that same level of support that you would get in a big university like this one. So really the only way that was to just start reading stuff and then I would hear other people's stories that way and go, oh, actually that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's totally okay to say I don't know, I'm not supposed to be the font of all knowledge. Um, I don't know if that's everybody's experience. Maybe Rachel had a different way of arriving at that point. Very similar. And I really like the idea of instantiating uh, how to respond to errors or that it's a good thing, you know, making errors are the only way, to, the only way we can really learn and progress in some ways. Uh, are there other ways as teachers we can, I suppose, even set up our curriculum um, so that there are greater opportunities for feedback? And one of the things you touched on, for example, is using assessment for learning. Um, can you elaborate on that? Sure. And like, you know, all of us, I think, when we go into a situation where we don't have training, it is trial by experience. And what we're trying to do, and particularly in um, podcasts like this, is to speed that up and to say, hey, it's okay to do this. But in response to your question about you know, the, the curriculum and where you go, I think we, on this particular question, we've underestimated that involvement of peers. And as an instructor, how you get the students who obviously kind of don't know, that's why they're there, how do you get them to, to actually mimic what you do when you don't know. Like, the best definition of IQ I know is it's what you do when you don't know what to do. 
And that's where we want to put our students. What do they do when they don't know? And so creating assignments where there is peer interaction, including peer assessment and giving students tasks in class where they deliberately don't know so they come to a solution working together. Now there's a whole lot of research, as we know, on that notion of uh, the wisdom of the crowd. And we know that the biggest moderator in that is social sensitivity. And the issue there is you could get groups of students together that don't have high social sensitivity. And so there may not be a lot of learning. And that's why there's a massive skill in setting up peer assessment. It's not simply getting peers to talk to each other. And that's the kind of skill that you know, we should be learning from others and we should be teaching in courses like this, is how do you set up those occurrences? And it doesn't have to be an assignment. It can be just an occasion in a lecture where you get the students to talk to each other. What's your views on this? What's your views on that? So they realise it's okay not to know. Um, so there's a lot of those kind of things we can do that yeah. can lead us to the wicked problem situation. So you want to optimise your crowds in a sense, and your crowds being you know, groups of students in your classroom. Yeah. So randomising your students might not necessarily be the best approach? Not necessarily, but then again, you know, if you've got an hour with them, as you know, we know from the work that you do, um, we don't have an hour's worth of uh, attention span. And so breaking them up into quizzes, uh, situations, these kind of small things, yeah, that really can make a dramatic difference. Now, there's a researcher, Graham Nuttall, did a really fascinating work uh, for many, 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 many years. He listened in to kids in the morning through microphones, and in the afternoon he went home. And what he discovered is 80% of the feedback the students get in a year is from other students, and 80% of it is wrong. And this is one of the other reasons why particularly new instructors don't give students opportunities to talk to each other, because it reinforces the wrong stuff. Now, there's the skill in teaching. Set it up so that when the students talk to each other, they're reinforcing the right stuff. So make sure there's follow-up. Make sure there's where-to next feedback yeah. in light of it. You just don't leave it. Um, and one of the reasons a lot of teachers don't do peer work is because they, can't, they don't know how to deal with the wrong stuff. They're incredibly powerful. The other question is, be very careful about when you ask peers to do things. Don't ask them to talk about facts, the content. Ask them to talk about how you relate those ideas. And then you've got a higher chance of it being right and an incredibly high chance of it being remembered. So that's a nice lead into something that I've been thinking about while we've been having this conversation. And that is the, the side of this that's about the self-regulation type feedback. Because for me, I've always found it quite tricky to figure out exactly how to deliver that kind of feedback. But I guess one way of doing that is obviously when they work with peers and then that leads into, you've done a lot of work around this idea of calibration. Yes. So that process then allows them to calibrate where they're going and start to think about where they need to go to next. Is that the right way? Well, it is, but I want one more thing, and unfortunately the one more thing is, is, is hard to do, and that is I want the students to know as they're doing those activities what a rubric is in terms of what an ABCD is, excellent, mediocre, average, etc. And it's really a lot of work to create that rubric up front for instructors, but that if you give them the rubric as they're doing the exercises, the amount of learning goes up exponentially, dramatically so. And it's the same thing you're talking about, giving them the cues to know when they're on the right track. The trouble with the self-regulation is they kind of on their own. What if they go in the wrong direction? And it's very disheartening for them to go in the wrong direction and find out they're wrong. So giving them cues along the way, and certainly we've found in the work we've done, giving them the rubric, giving them examples of what the answers are whatever, which means you have to construct your task a little bit differently because you don't want the task to be just exactly on the rubric. So there's a bit of an interaction there. But yes, giving them cues, giving them the rubric of what uh, excellent achieved, not achieved is, and then giving them the opportunities to self-direct. Wow, that's exactly what we want to mimic. Let's do it.
I think one of the things that we struggle with as teachers, especially as we get even more knowledgeable in a particular content area, is that we're further away from being a novice, from encountering that information as if we've never encountered it before. And so sometimes it's, it's hard to, as a teacher, you need to communicate um, to somebody who doesn't share the same knowledge as you do. And so I can see the peer feedback, in a way, being, in, being a way to bridge that gap, to translate expert knowledge to less knowledgeable novices. Um, so overcoming the, the curse of knowledge, in a sense. Yes. There are quite a few uh, methods we can use, and you know, it's, it's a reasonably uh, well-discussed era in the literature, like... One of the most powerful forms of peer um, interaction is the jigsaw method. And this is where you have students in groups. And you know, I certainly use a lot of group work in the classes I teach. Imagine a group of students and you, you, you label them A, B, C, D, E. Then you give each of those, the A's, the B's, and C's, a specific task. And usually it's a content task to know about something. And so they go away and they work on that by themselves. Then you get all the A's across your class together in smaller groups and they teach each other what they've learned from that first exercise about the content. And that's the first half. Then they go back to the original groups and the A's teach the B's and the B's, the C's and the D's and the X about their part of it. So they're all bringing together some knowledge, hopefully corrected by doing the first round. And they then have a different task then to relate those ideas. And that has an incredibly high effect size. It brings together the surface and the deep. It makes sure and minimises the chance of there being error. And so this is the kind of thing we should be looking for. To, it's not as so simple as you're implying, as, you, as you're agreeing with me, I think, is that you just set them to do tasks. You have to structure the task so that the group actually makes the difference. And the other beauty of things like the jigsaw method, then you get peers giving each other feedback. I don't understand that. You're going to have to tell me more. I think it's this. You think it's that. How do we follow up and check it? And that's when the real where-to-next feedback happens. And you know, if, particularly if you're in a class of 500 to 1,000, you can do this not easily, but you can, stru- you can structure situations, many situations, where you can optimise these kind of interactions. And we know that students are much more likely to remember that than anything you get up there and tell them. Yeah, I suppose you're giving them multiple bites of the cherry or multiple ways of thinking about the exact same thing. And so I can see how that could, could re- relate in a really result in a really deep understanding of a, con- a new concept or whatever it is you're trying yes. to learn. But again, it's getting that... Optimising that power of feedback and certainly as you're saying, Jason, at that self-regulation level where they're taking more responsibility to know when they are wrong, to then remedy where they're wrong and to take the initiative. And that's, that's the optimal skill. Yeah, because I mean, that's the sorts of things that they would be expected to do after they graduate. Totally. <laughs> yeah. But the other thing they're expected to do after they graduate is work in teams, collaborate and interpret. Whereas if you look at the majority of the assignments we give students in our universities, they'll own activities, which is not what we want when they graduate. Can we take a, a big step back here and, and change the conversation to what are the sorts of things you think uh, we should be looking at now as researchers in education and psychology and trying to further understand how we might implement feedback? Um, where should we go from here? Well, I think the certainly what we're doing at the moment is spending a lot more time looking at that cycle of learning and how the feedback fits into that. And I take the work that you, you're doing, for example, on confusion. I see that particularly powerful at the, the deeper level, the relation stage. I see it very ineffective at the surface level phase. And you know, that has required you know, some pretty impressive research that the kind of piece of that work of you, you and others have been doing to say, where is the student in the learning cycle? And the trouble when you face a class of 1,000 students, they're all over the place in terms of where they are on that learning cycle. And so how do we actually structure our activities and our lessons to ensure that we are hitting kids, students, not at 
not at where they're at, but where they're at plus more. And so this is where the notion of challenge becomes critical, particularly in the feedback cycle. And the concept of challenge is the Goldilocks principle of not too hard, not too boring. And how do you pitch that? And this is where the real art of teaching comes in. Students will do remarkably difficult things if it's not boring. But if they sense any boredom, then they'll turn off the challenge and they'll default back to their old ways. And so looking at that as part of the learning cycle, and you know, some students love challenge, some students hate it. Um, understanding what they come into the classroom in terms of their prior skills, we're not bad at that. We have a structure. What are their, their wills? What are their dispositions? We're not very good at that. And how do we teach them to be resilient at the right moment? How do we teach them to be resourceful at the right moment? And, there's, uh, and then the other notion is what is their motivation? And certainly there, you know, there's a traditional argument that um, mastery and performance, you do something because you want to master and have deep understanding, or you do something because you just want to pass the exams. Well, it turns out that there's a third source of motivation that's much more powerful at the tertiary level, and that's what John Biggs calls the achieving motivation, and that is the skill to know when to be surface, when to be deep. And great students know that all you want is knowledge, or what you want is interpretation. And that's the skill we have to teach them. And the best way to do that is to be very explicit. Like in all my assignment work, I give the students two questions on every problem, a surface and a deep question, and I tell them which is surface and deep. And it works very well. Most times the student has to guess what you're thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we need to be more explicit about what we want. Yeah, and I think you're right too about the challenge uh, in balancing uh, learning. Uh, so making things, cha things challenging enough so that people are optimally learning, but also keeping them interested and engaged Curious. in the task. That's the, it's the art of teaching. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Rolf Reber, I think, has suggested, and I'm going to butcher this, but it's something like example selection as one way of balancing those two things. So you might, um, you could control the level of challenge in the kinds of things that students are working through, but you allow them some degree of autonomy in picking the examples that are most interesting uh, to them. Do you see something like that or similar strategies? If you can control the level of challenge, because most of our students, particularly the brighter ones, are very good at choosing safe targets, and your job's to mess that up. So yes, as long as you can control that. It, it almost sounds like that's quite a sophisticated thing to do. If you're trying to represent that in a curriculum and an assessment and get all these things to line up so that they actually can work for a thousand or more students at a time, so that's one side of it. And the other side is almost that you've got to create a culture there that um, you know, allows students to feel okay that they're, they're struggling with things. And that, that, to me, seems like quite a sophisticated thing to do. Do you have any advice about what people can do if they're, if they're thinking, wow, this is going to be really hard for me to do all this stuff? Well, it is. But you know, it's, it's, it's no surprise the answer is that you know, we can educate people to be great teachers. You're not going to pick it up in five seconds. Um, like I had the luxury of being a teacher before I became an academic, so I'd gone through some of this, I'd be exposed to these ideas, I realised it was, a, as you just said, it's a hang of a lot harder, it's not as simple as standing up there and one size fits all, which is what many novice teachers do. There is quite a sophistication in this, but this is where, particularly as new into the game, how you work with colleagues that are struggling with these same problems, how you seek help from the kind of services that are, are offered by CSHE and others around the place. Um, how you can actually start to read that scholarship of learning, which is really burgeoning in the last 10 years, and pick up ideas from others. Um, like I find it kind of remarkable that if, you, if I'm a chemist or if I'm a medica or if I'm a historian, my first thing would be to worry about the evidence in my area. But I assume teaching I can pick up by osmosis? No, there's evidence out there as well. 
And it's, as we're talking about, it's not as simplistic. But we've learned a hang of a lot. And, you know, why wait 10 years to discover it yourself? Let's go and see what others have done. Let's see what the research has said about how we can make a difference. Uh, and some stunningly good resources out there. One of the things that we like to do at the end of each of these episodes is to ask each of our guests what they're excited about. What, what sorts of things are, are you thinking that are going to be really great or look like they're going to have a lot of potential over the next sort of five to ten years? Is there anything there that you know, gets you really excited about what's happening in higher ed and learning and teaching? And... Look, I, what gets me excited at the moment is that you know, I've talked throughout the session about this notion of surface to deep. And what I find intriguing is that, as far as I know, no one has actually helped understand the moment when you go from surface to deep and how you can actually instill and inspire that moment. I think that's quite exciting how we do it. We need both, but how you do that. I think there's a tremendous amount uh, that we need to learn more about the role of errors and confusions. You know, that's only emerged in the last few, four, four, three or four years. Um, it's kind of always been seen as a mistake. We need to avoid it. I think that's a very exciting area. I think the whole um, neuroscience of learning, we've not, made any, we've not made the breakthrough. We haven't built the bridge yet. Everyone's promising it. We haven't got there. I take the view that someone's going to discover it. Um, I think it's going to go the other way. It's going to go from a problem in education that a neuroscience assistant helps explaining, and that will be a massive breakthrough how we bring those together. I'm very excited that the concept of learning has come back into the equation. It's been missing for many years. I think if you went out and asked virtually every teacher in the world to name two theories of learning they couldn't um, whereas learning is our core business but we're reinventing it through the science of learning so I can get very excited about that I see that that whole area particularly the way we're using social media and um, to have debates and discussions and spreading the knowledge in those areas very exciting I think there's a whole future out there waiting for us in the learning area we've focused far too much on teaching and not enough on learning so one interesting thing I want to pick up on there is the, the, the angle of technology. We haven't really touched on technology much in this conversation. I mean, where do you see technology fitting broadly? And you talked a little bit about social media. Is there anything more broadly that you think is going to have a real impact? Well, we've had 140 meta-analysis on the use of technology um, over the last 50 years, and the effect size hasn't changed despite the massive change in technology. It's very low. And so the only question in town is why has technology not had the impact? Because it hasn't in the ways. And part of the reason I would say from that is that we've used technology as a knowledge consumption kind of notion to do the kind of things we would have did normally, but more efficiently. And I was sitting a while ago and watching this um, class, and the person was trying to get the students to ask questions about stuff they didn't know. And it was really hard to do. And I was watching this one student, and the teacher went up to him and said, you know, what is it you don't know? And he said, no, no, I'm okay, I don't know. And then he had his iPad and he, he wrote the teacher a question. Now, she was standing there, but he wrote it on an iPad and he actually shared it with the rest of the class, but he would never do it in person. And so that notion of using social media to explore what you don't know, I think is incredibly untapped. Like 90-something percent of questions that teachers ask in class are about the facts. 90% of the students ask about the facts. And so how do you break that down? And this is where I think social media where we can actually explore the things we've been talking over this last podcast, has got a massive chance for a breakthrough. So it's almost like a back channel where the students might feel more comfortable in interacting Trust. in that back channel rather than, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And like we, we, we often don't like when students do rate my professor on sites where there's all anonymous. They're actually saying something. How do we capture that and make it within the class as a power? I think there's a massive opportunity there.
Hear, hearing you uh, talk before about going from surface to deep and better understanding that transition, do you think that we're returning to, maybe we never left, but are we returning to this idea that we want to encourage uh, students to develop transferable knowledge and skills, things that they can take from the classroom and apply you know, outside the classroom in their everyday lives? And you know, after they graduate from university, is, is there a shift from you know, content-based knowledge to, to more generalizable skills and knowledge? Yeah, there is, but we've got to be careful here. Like my concept of learning is based on moving from surface to deep to transfer. And I privilege all three. So often we denigrate the content. Um, in many ways, as John Sweller said many years ago, bright people know, struggling people think. It's how you do all three of those parts. And so, yes, I think we've oversaturated on content, but I don't denigrate it. We need it. There are important things we need to know. Then how you relate those ideas is the deeper part, um, and I think that's really critical. And then you come to your third part, is the transfer. And notice I make it the third part. Sometimes we say we have to make the content realistic, authentic. No, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we just need to know the stuff. And transfer is our dirty secret. It's been around, as you said, for 150, 200 years. Um, and so often we say, oh, bright people can do it, struggling people can't transfer. We actually could teach transfer. Um, and the best way of, that I know of teaching transfer from the work we're doing is that after the student has gone through the surface, after they've done the relating of the ideas, you give them a new problem. Before they do the new problem, you say, wait, tell me the similarities and the differences between the two problems. The effect size of 1.32 is dramatic. So many people rush from one problem to the next. They apply the same strategy when the same strategy is not asked for. They apply the same content and thinking where it's not asked for. And so that skill of knowing how problems differ, so spending a lot of time working out what the nature of the problem is and agreeing on that before you tackle it. Novices rush in, wise men are very safe and cautious, and they actually can pick out those differences. So yes, you can teach transfer, and that's where I would bring in the equation. Not too soon, but not too late. I think that's a beautiful uh, place to end. <laughs> and hopefully we've done a lot, quite a bit of going from surface to deep during the course of this conversation. Exactly. <laughs> thank you, Jason. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you so much, John. Thanks, John.